I found some research done in other countries, and I was part of a team that just finished some research here in the U.S. on uh, North American installations. And all three studies have shown crash rate reductions for edge lane roads over the standard two-lane treatment. We found a 44% reduction in crash rate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, October 8th, 2021, and I'm delighted to welcome Michael Williams into the Active Towns virtual studios for a conversation about edge lane roads. Now, if you're not yet familiar with this type of roadway treatment, well, you are in for a treat. Trust me, they are pretty darn cool when done well. But before we roll into that conversation and cover those details, please allow me a brief moment to say that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. If you'd also like to help support my efforts by making a contribution, just head over to my website at activetowns.org and navigate to the donation page. It's also important to mention that there are a few other ways that you can help support the effort. The first is to subscribe to the audio podcast on your preferred listening platform. The second is to subscribe to the Active Towns YouTube channel. Just be sure to click on the bell next to the subscribe button so that you'll get an alert when I post new videos. And finally, please help spread the word about the Active Towns initiative within your personal and professional networks as appropriate. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for whatever support you're able to provide as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity for all ages and abilities. Okay, let's get this discussion about edge lane roads with Michael Williams rolling. Michael, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. So our, our topic today is to introduce and demystify the edge lane road, or as some members of the audience may know it, the advisory bike lane treatment. And we're going to dive into a lot of those details and, and define it and all that good stuff in our discussion. But to kick this off, why don't you just share a little bit about yourself and uh, how you come to be interested in this particular field of study? I spent most of my life in the rural environment, small towns, in the mountains, etc. So that's the perspective I come from. Also, I've been a cyclist all my life. And so much of my cycling experience has been in the rural environment. And so I'm most attuned to the problems, potential solutions, way solutions don't work when they're moved from the urban to the rural environment, etc. So when I visited the Netherlands and discovered this treatment, I thought it was great. In rural areas, you have these roads that just have very few cars on them, but they've got a center line down the middle, and you are either in the travel lane or you're in the drainage ditch next to the road. So when I saw this treatment, I knew this was something that fit our rural environment well and come to learn that it also fits quite a few urban settings also. So it was that rural perspective combined with the discovery of this treatment in the Netherlands that led me to believe that this is something 
we really need to have in our toolbox in the U.S. So, Michael, I was digging into your CV a little bit and your background. Now, you don't have necessarily formal training in this area until much later in your life. So what were you doing in the first part of your career? You're right. Civil engineering, active transportation is the third career in my life. My first career was as a oh, computer, software, hardware, biomedical engineer. I went down to the Silicon Valley, and the primary job I had there was as a developer, did a little bit of research on the first implantable defibrillator ever with a small company by the name of Ventratex that no longer exists. It's been swallowed up by one of the large companies that like to do that. So I did that for, I think, about 15 years, medical applications of computer software and hardware. And then I moved back to the rural area, back to the mountains, beautiful little town of Mount Shasta, where I became a general contractor. And I primarily worked in public works, roads, bridges, schools, different things like that. I'd always had a hobby of construction. And I said, hey, I can do this for my job as well. So I did that for about the same number of years, right around 15 years. And all during this time, I, I had pursued self-education around active transportation in general. And then once I felt my enthusiasm for the construction world ebbing, I told myself I'm going to go up, get a degree in civil engineering, and, and start working in an area that I've been passionate about since I was in my 20s. That's what I did. I went to Portland State University, one of the best campuses in the country for this type of area and went from there. Now let's go back to what you were talking about before because you wove into and you've just alluded to it that uh, you did a trip in your 20s and you had an opportunity to uh, visit the Netherlands. So when was that about? Oh, well, I've been to the Netherlands three times, maybe four times, I believe, mm -hmm. where most of those trips, I was just traveling, having a good time and uh, road bikes, but I didn't have my active transportation goggles on. I just enjoyed the, the freedom, the luxury of, of being safe and comfortable on my bike in that country. The last time I went was actually on a uh, guided tour with Dr. Peter Firth, where we got great access to some of the engineers, the uh, the local engineers there in the Netherlands, we went and saw particular installations. So that was when I discovered the edge lane road treatment. Fantastic. That's great. I get the sense then that when you were there the first time, that wasn't necessarily the time where you had that thinking cap on and were like going, oh, this is a neat treatment. You were, you were just like really enjoying the fact that you were traveling and had an opportunity to experience a, a different lifestyle. Is that about right? Yeah, the Netherlands is a great place to go, whether you like bikes or not. And if you like bikes, it's a fantastic place to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I thought I'd do to tee this up is, and I shared with you before we hit the record button, that we're on a, a new video platform here, being able to share some content. And I thought it would be fun for us to actually show you a little video that was sitting on my iPad. I had no idea that this was out there. It was from a trip that I did in the Netherlands in 2018. And as I was loading the iPad up with some of your photos, I'm like, oh, you're going to get a kick out of this. So let me cue this up. Right. 
And hopefully the technology wizards will allow us to jump right into this and have some fun with it. And let's head on over and hopefully you can see that. Yes, yes, it looks beautiful. Okay, so I'll set this up a little bit for you and for the audience. This was in 2018 and I just happened to be riding out to the airport. So literally, this is just along the way, getting out to the main airport there in Amsterdam. I was shooting some video. It's a little, it's a little off. Uh, I was experimenting with a 360 degree camera. So anyways, let me show you this and uh, we can kind of talk about that. I got a good chuckle out of this because uh, a lot of it just really demonstrates some of the things that, that you talk about. Was this in Amsterdam? This is, yeah, this is in uh, some of the neighborhoods between Amsterdam proper and heading out to the airport. So this would definitely be a, a urban slash suburban context. So anyways, I just thought it would be fun <laughs> to share that, to, to set the scene, if you will, for the audience to be able to look at this. For those of you who are listening to, to this as a podcast audio only, you just missed some amazing video. You're gonna have to head over to the video version of this particular podcast because we've got some really good stuff out there. But I thought it would be neat to, to show you that just because A, it, it tickled me that I went out there and found it out on my iPad as I was loading some of your photos in there. And two, I just thought it was a, a wonderful example to what you were just saying is that it's that, that combination of we've seen it out there applied in rural environments, but here's a, a context that's very much more of a suburban type of urban application of it. So I thought it would be nice to, to talk a little bit about that as a visual for you to then take this over and uh, help us out with some definitions and what these beasts are in terms of facilities. So take it away, Professor. So, okay, I, I don't have my PhD, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I do know something about these things. That video, if you folks that have seen the video that he showed, you'll note that there was no center line painted or marked on the roadway. That's an important part of an edge lane road facility. And what you did have were broken lines or dashed lines on either side, splitting the road up into essentially three different lanes, if you will. The center lane is shared by cars going both directions. The center lane is not normally wide enough for two cars to pass one another. Staying within that center lane, if you have two cars that approach one another, they need to merge into one of those two edge lanes to complete the pass. And then once they've completed the pass, they move back into the center lane and continue on their way. The edge lanes that are created by the dashed or broken lines there are intended for vulnerable road users. In the video you just showed, it's intended specifically for cyclists, but uh, I've seen equestrians in, in those lanes and really could use them for any type of vulnerable road user. Uh, wheelchair users, pedestrians, there are a number of edge lane road installations in the U.S. that were installed explicitly to support pedestrians. So it really doesn't matter whether it's bicycles or people walking or people riding a horse or on mobility devices. What it is, it's just a slightly different way to share that roadway width rather than the normal look that we've come to expect, which is a center line down the middle of the road, maybe no other markings as well, which guarantees that 
you're in the travel lane no, no matter where you're at on that road. If you have a sidewalk, then you're lucky, you're a pedestrian, you get to be on the sidewalk. But if you're on the roadway, normally those narrow roads, you're in the travel lane and you've got cars coming up from behind you, et cetera. So it's a much, much more friendly and a much more uh, reasonable <laughs> way to share the roadway with, but that's my bias showing. And as you mentioned, more vulnerable users of the road space. Uh, you had mentioned that if there were sidewalks present, then maybe pedestrians uh, wouldn't need to be sharing this space. It, it looks like there's not much in the way of sidewalks in this particular context. So this is truly a shared space, whether it's the bipedal types of uh, folks or whether we have the four-leggeds uh, also sharing the space. So good stuff. I wanted to queue up a couple of other photos that, that we had here and talk a little bit more about them. So here's a, another one that, that you passed along that really, I think, exemplifies what you were just describing in terms of having the space. And on, on the one side, it looks like there is a sidewalk space, but on the other side, not so much. And in fact, there's a pedestrian occupying that space. Talk a little bit about why it is we see this type of treatment over in the Netherlands, and it looks like Denmark has also embraced them and several other countries. What's a little bit of the history behind why they're there and, and not necessarily everywhere else? That's a good question. I, I don't have all the answers for that question. My understanding is that at least in the Netherlands, this was a treatment that arose out of the government department that's responsible for all of the dikes, all of the levees and dikes that hold back the water in the Netherlands. And they have quite a few roads that run along the top of the dikes. And of course, these roads are fairly narrow. And so when they wanted to accommodate vulnerable road users on those roads, this is the solution they came up with. With respect to other countries, I think the idea really spread from the Netherlands to, to other countries as people became aware of it. This picture here in particular is from Denmark. It's a Danish edge lane road. You can tell by the width of the broken lines there. But they have modified some of the engineering guidance to make this a treatment their own based on the research and the safety data. But yeah, it's been used in the Netherlands, Germany, Japan, Denmark, Great Britain, and some other Scandinavian countries. But those are the primary users that I'm aware of outside of the U.S. and Canada. Fantastic. Here's a, another one. Why the unhappy face on this one? So this, again, is a Danish installation. And this, I, I love this picture because it's such a great way to do road user education. We've got a little bit of peer pressure there where they're literally frowning on the behavior. And what they're trying to communicate is, hey, this is a road where motor vehicles belong in the center lane. You don't want to be edging over into those edge lanes. So it's, I just found this amusing. It's road user education, pure and simple. And of course, in the classic European way, they don't write it out in some language that a visitor may be un unable to understand. They use a very graphic, very direct way to, to get their message across. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that in Denmark is a great place for this. They tend to be rule followers anyway. So <laughs> this is a, a nice reminder, a nice stern, unhappy face that, yeah, don't be uh, straddling that line there. A couple of other uh, fun ones. This one I thought was interesting. 
in that it looks like the space that is reserved off to the side then gets blocked. What can you tell us about what's happening with this treatment? And it does look like it's also another Danish installation. I'm not sure I know this facility. So what you're coming up to is a choke point. Treatment intended to slow drivers. But uh, if you look on either side of the choke point islands, there is a space for cyclists or vulnerable road users to go around those islands. So as a vulnerable road user comes up to that, they would go around the outside of the islands and the drivers would be forced to go through the middle. It looks like in this case, as you blew it up, there appears to be a trail crossing the street. And so this is a way to slow drivers at a crossing crosswalk, probably a fairly well-used trail, I'm guessing. But yeah, it's just a traffic calming device used on an edge lane road in yeah, I, I would even echo to to the fact that it's probably a traffic calming device for cyclists too, because it, it there's yeah. literally uh, an impediment in the middle of the quote unquote lane there that they, they have. So let's take a look at another one. This is an example from, I believe, from Japan. Is that correct? Correct. I think this is the Kanazawa Prefecture, or it, it's a suburb of Tokyo, I believe somewhere around Tokyo. But the real interesting thing about this one is that it has split the edge lanes up into pedestrian and bicycle. And I, I don't know Japanese road marking intents, but I'm guessing that the pedestrian area, which is next to the edge of the road, it's marked with a solid line and the bicycle area is marked with a dashed line. So my assumption is that the dashed areas available for cars to pass one another, but that pedestrian area is off limits. But again, I don't claim to know the, the exact meaning of road marking in Japan, but this is an interesting uh, concept to me. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it sure is. We'll pull up one of your slides in just a moment, but one of the things that comes to mind when I first saw this installation really being readily used in the Netherlands. I guess it must have been way back in 2015 on my first trip there that I was just like, wow, this is fascinating because it's not the protected infrastructure and it's not the same flavor of shared infrastructure that the Fietstraats are or the bicycle priority streets. It's a different stripe altogether and it just worked really well. But one of the things that I really um, reflected on was the fact that what made it work so well were the motor vehicle speeds are definitely, you, you use the word traffic calmed. They're definitely much more forgiving to having this type of design or perhaps said in another way, the design really encourages slower speeds. Talk a little bit about that, and then I'm wondering if it might make sense for us to queue up either of the two videos that you sent over, either the Ottawa one or the one from New Hampshire. So address the speed, and then if it makes sense, we'll queue up the video. We're talking about two different cultures when we compare the Netherlands and the U.S. In the Netherlands, most drivers are also bicycle riders. In the U.S., not so much. So that leads to a bit of a uncertainty in my mind about how to apply this treatment, where to apply this treatment, where this treatment will be successful. But what I've seen with the research I've done on the installations we have already in the U.S. is that drivers respond to this treatment very appropriately. And of course, right now, the federal guidance that's out there 
specifies a maximum speed of 35 miles an hour and a maximum volume of 6,000 cars per day. To my mind, there's a lot that needs to be improved about that guidance. That is the subject of some of the articles I've published. For example, I don't think a 6,000 cars per day road at 35 miles an hour is going to be a comfortable place to ride for most people, especially at peak volumes. But if you get down in the lower volumes and the lower speeds, you're looking at a treatment that could easily be used as an all ages and abilities. For example, one of the first mentions of this treatment in any guidance in the U.S. was the still very good handbook on bicycle boulevards that was created by Mia Burke and a couple of other authors who I forget at the moment, where they said, hey, this advisory bike lane was a term they used. This advisory bike lane treatment is an excellent way to mark bicycle boulevard, neighborhood greenway, whatever you choose to call it, because what it does that gets the vulnerable road users out of the lane where the cars are, right? You've got them horizontally separated. And it's only when two cars need to pass that you need to do some extra negotiation and merge into that edge lane, which if you're on a street that's suitable for a bicycle boulevard, those types of passing operations shouldn't be happening very frequently. In terms of speed and volume, the real enemy of this treatment is volume. If you have too many cars, that makes a mess. If you have too many cyclists even, the cars don't have a place to pull over to accomplish the pass. Unfortunately, we don't have the too many bicyclists problem in the U.S. very often. In the Netherlands, they do. And so that is one of the, the reasons they will choose not to use an edge lane road treatment in the Netherlands is if they have too many cyclists. The speed is a little bit of a different issue. Speed obviously is a risk factor. It makes any crash worse. Uh, severity goes up, the speed goes up, as everyone well knows. But there are examples of edge lane roads, one in particular that I'm aware of in Scotland, where it's 60 miles an hour, about 1,400 cars a day, and it's marked as an edge lane road. The engineer that put it in loves it. It's been in place for, I think, 15 years now. He says safety is much better than it was before, and he would love to do it on more streets, but people are too freaked out about it. They won't let him do it. So speed is a bit of a different issue. There is comfort. There is uh, a severity issue, but it's not nearly as big an impact as the volume. This particular treatment has several different names, as I learned when I was out on your website. So you use the, the, the term advisory bike lanes, and, and many people may know them as that. Why is that not necessarily a, a good term to use? Why is edge lane road better? So they're known by... The names I'm aware of that are most commonly used in the U.S. are dash bike lanes, which almost nobody but the FHWA uses. And then there's advisory shoulders and advisory bike lanes, and then edge lane roads. The problem with advisory shoulder and advisory bike lanes is that these edge lanes are neither shoulders nor are they bike lane. Both of the terms shoulder and bike lane come with very specific legal and regulatory baggage. Shoulders are not part of the travel way. They are not intended to have motor vehicles in them. Bike lanes are intended to be exclusively used for, by bicyclists, with the rare exception when cars need to cross them to get to access parking, etc. So with the legal context of those concepts, shoulder and bike lanes are both a poor choice. And that's why Edge Lane Roads is the name I prefer. It's a name used in Denmark, and it appears to be being adopted more and more in the U.S.
Okay. You think you're getting some traction on that here in, in North America? Yeah, I was just looking at my website details and the Edge Lane Road search term has really not been showing up anywhere. Yeah. And in the most recent month, I think it was maybe 10 or 20% of the search terms. It's normally advisory bike lane people are using, but Edge Lane Roads are starting to, to gain their own yeah, following. Yeah. All right, let's queue up that video from Ottawa because I think it's, it's really snappy and, and gets right to it. Of course, they end up calling it advisory bike lane, but we'll do that and uh, and chat a little bit about it. It's very short. It's it's not too long. And can, I, can I introduce yeah. it a little bit? Yeah. This is a video that the city of Ottawa put out to introduce people to the concept, to the treatment, and how to operate on it. And if anybody out there is looking for a video to do this, to introduce the concept, the behaviors expected, this is a really good one to use. It's available on my website if you need to go look at it. Fantastic. Let's queue it up. Like I said, nice and snappy and, and gets right to it. When you show people that video, what's their response? I don't show people that video very often. <laughs> very uh, often? Because normally I'm doing presentations and it's mm-hmm. always, it's, sometimes it's a bit dicey to do video inside yeah. your uh, presentation. But I show them stills. I show them pictures from the Small Town Guide, the FHWA Small Town and Rural Multimodal Networks Guide. But if I'm dealing with an audience to which this concept is brand new, there's always somebody that says, this is crazy, you're putting us into a game of chicken. And I always come back with, you know, what happens on narrow alleys? What happens on residential streets where you've got cars parked on both sides and you don't have enough room for two cars to get past? What happens on one-lane bridges? What happens in narrow shopping mall parking lots? Streets that are not yet fully plowed after a snowstorm. On and on, this type of behavior, this negotiating for space to pass an oncoming vehicle. It's a behavior that drivers all across the world do hundreds of millions of times a day or a week. I don't know the actual number, but it's a behavior that is common for us as drivers in the U.S. to do. Yeah, I have reflected many times here on the podcast. That's exactly the situation here in our neighborhood in in Austin, Texas. It's an older neighborhood, platted probably in the 1930s. Many of the streets are narrow enough so that if there's cars parked on either side of the street, the remaining (laughs) real estate that's left over in the middle is so narrow that it becomes a yield street. So you're absolutely right. That behavior of traveling with care, slowing down, yielding and negotiating who gets to go, who doesn't, et cetera, is much more common than I think a lot of us realize or give it credit for. Yeah. And one thing that that video stated was that it's a good treatment for roads that are too narrow for standard bike lanes. And that's a characterization that I don't agree with. It it can be used for that, but there are also other use cases that this treatment really uh, does well at. For example, referring back to the Netherlands again, the city of Utrecht, long known as one of the most, if not the most, progressive city in terms of accommodating bicyclists within the Netherlands, they recently removed a standard two-lane street with bike lanes and transformed it into an edge lane road. And that was because they weren't getting the low speeds they wanted. The bike lanes were hard up against a parking lane, which is not something they like to do. And they wanted a calmer, 
quieter, more comfortable road. And when they did that, they got fewer autos on that road. They got lower speeds. They lowered the speed limit at the same time as the edge lane road. And they got more cyclists. So in Utrecht, most progressive city in the Netherlands, they took out standard bike lanes, put an edge lane road, and got great results. So there are situations where an edge lane road can be better than a standard bike lane. So this is the before treatment that you were just talking about where motor vehicles were present and clearly parking <laughs> on the edge there. And then the, the after uh, treatment ends up looking more like this. And you can see the data that's also uh, presented there. Yeah, and this is courtesy. I think I got this from Mark Wagenberg's, as I said, number of bikes went up significantly, number of cars dropped, and of course the speeds dropped. They dropped the speed limit from 50 to 30 kilometers an hour. This is a situation where the road was just wide enough for bike lanes and two travel lanes. And what that ends up doing is it really sandwiches the cyclists between the moving cars and the parking lane. And you've got very little horizontal clearance, very little space to feel comfortable. And if you move to an edge lane road, you can actually increase that horizontal clearance between the moving cars and the cyclists quite significantly. Let me ask you this. So the other video that we have, it's a little bit longer, but it, it's actually a U.S. example. We're talking about New Hampshire here. It's extraordinary to see the amount of bikes and pedestrians out there. Clearly, they feel quite comfortable you know, occupying the space. And you know, for the most part, the motor vehicle drivers are proceeding with due caution. It, it's probably an indication that it has been in place for so long and people have become really accommodated to this treatment. What are your thoughts along those lines? Is that a big part of it is getting the facility down and then giving it time to, to season and mature and, and become something that people are become used to? There is that process. As part of the research that I've done on installations in the U.S., one of the things I've asked about is how much prior public outreach, how much education was done before the installation was installed, what kind of response did you get? did the agency receive once it was installed, et cetera. And what I found was there are two installations that were removed after they were installed. Both of them suffered from a lack of public education beforehand. And the agencies that did a lot of public education beforehand got almost zero negative comments about the installation after it was installed. There are examples of installations where almost no education was done, but in a lot of those, and most of those actually, drivers reacted appropriately. They slowed down, they drove in the middle, they negotiated for space. So really what happens is there is an advantage to telling people, educating them about the concept, telling them it's coming, uh, because it's going to lessen your negative feedback once it's installed. But it's not truly necessary for it to work correctly. The two that were removed after installation, one was in a fairly wealthy, affluent area, suburb of Minneapolis, and it was their main street to the golf country club. It also had marked parking on either side that was very unused, and so the markings were a bit confusing. So you had an older population, you had that pattern that tends to happen where People don't like change, and when it's introduced to them suddenly and they have political connection, they can get that change reversed. 
So there is that issue. But yeah, public education is good just to ensure a bit more acceptance. But people use it appropriately, whether they know what's expected or not from the stories I've heard from agency representatives. Yeah, it seems if you get the design right, and in other words, it's designed well, you're able to keep those speeds down and then it becomes intuitive. Again, one of the main rules of any kind of shared space is creating that balance between organized chaos, there you go, of does it make the drivers feel just a little bit uncomfortable? And if so, they'll slow down. But at the same token, you, you've got a situation where the, the constraints are there. In other words, that center lane isn't too wide to the point where it encourages truly fast motor vehicle speeding. And so I think that's a big part of it. One of the things that I wanted to talk with you about is that design. And so I'm going to pull up the better than bike lanes slide that you have. And the caveat to this is in the setup to this that I'll, I'll give, this is my commentary, is that this is better than bike lanes the way we used to build bike lanes. All right. So this is a comparison between what is probably the most common type of bike infrastructure provided in the country nowadays and the edge lane road. And this comparison is only valid for roads that are lower volume, lower speed, where an edge lane road will work. And what you have on the top of the slide is an example of the traditional bike lane. I think I even made it, yeah, it's six feet wide in this case, so wider than a lot of bike lanes are out there now. But you've got a bike lane that's sandwiched in between the parking lane and a travel lane. So if you are appropriately cautious as a rider and you're trying to avoid that door zone, you really have very little space, very, a very narrow envelope. I think uh, five feet, if I see there correctly, a five-foot envelope in, in which you can ride. And that envelope is hard up against a traveling car and you got a little fudge into the door zone area. So your horizontal clearance is not great. In this type of facility, and that's with a six-foot lane. But if you compare that to an edge lane road installation, you can create buffers between the parking lane and the edge lane. And that not only allows a place for drivers and passengers to swing their doors open and access their cars, but that gives you a place for garbage cans or the pile of leaf clippings on the days they go to pick up leaves and branches all of the junk that ends up on the street in normal bike lanes. You also can have a much wider edge. I think in this example, I made it eight foot wide and a drive lane of 10 foot, which is more than wide enough for a center lane on edge lane road installation. And so what you have is a large increase in that horizontal clearance between both the moving vehicles and the parked vehicles. And that just that improves safety, it improves comfort. And so on the right street, an edge lane road is going to give you a much better experience as a cyclist than your standard bike lanes will. Yeah. And what I like about this photo, too, is it does add uh, an element that was absent in many of the photos that we looked at, and, and that is the on-street parking. And so I like the way that you have that diagrammed out with that door zone buffer, giving that nice space there for the bike lane and really constraining that traveling, that tra traveling of just 10 feet is there. But as we saw from the videos, as we saw from the diagrams, it works and motor vehicle drivers will slow down and proceed with caution 
And I think what I'd like to do now is have you comment a little bit about some of the, the photographs that we have that you'd sent over because we have proof. You sent me proof <laughs> that these exist in the United States. And, and so we do have a few photos that, that we can share with folks and walk through them. Let's pull this one up here and you can walk us through it. What are we looking at here? So this is a really interesting application of Edge Lane Roads. This is a small town in the state of Washington. It's called Port Townsend. It's got a, a central business district that was built oh, around the turn of the century, I believe. It was, it was supposed to be the Seattle of Washington until the railroad ended up more closer to Seattle rather than Port Townsend. But this was a busy port destination in the old days. But this is the main street in downtown Port Townsend, and they established an Edge Lane Road because they have a tradition of allowing delivery trucks to park in the middle of the road. If you see that, it's barely visible. There's a transverse white line in the middle of the road there that indicates, hey, you should park here to make your deliveries. There are no alleys behind these buildings, so there's no way to take your deliveries into the buildings. So they said, we want to accommodate bicyclists, but we have this problem with big trucks parking in the middle of the road. How do we do this? So what they came up with was the Edge Lane Road treatment. They have a speed limit of 20 miles an hour. And the interesting thing about this installation is that they see volumes up around 7,000 cars a day, which is higher than the mandatory 6,000 cars per day threshold where the MUTCD requires the use of a center line. So here's an example where hey, it doesn't have to be per the book and it can still work and work safely. You've got high volumes, but you've got low speeds. People are careful, they're negotiating, and it works very well for them. They're happy with the treatment, and in fact, they are extending it to other roads within the town very soon. And I believe these uh, additional photos are also from Port Townsend, correct? This is Port Townsend as well. It looks like there's a center line mark there, but that's from construction that's not a that is not a center line folks that is part of the travel lane now i will say that travel lane that center lane is quite generous that's much more than the 10 feet that you had on your diagram they made their center lane wider because of this issue with the trucks parking in the middle so right. they had a bit different uh, set of circumstances to deal with absolutely beautiful and how long has this installation been in place this has been in place for a little over a year i believe okay Fantastic. Proof that it can be done. It can be done in Main Street, USA. Main Street, USA. Yes, absolutely. Delivery trucks, trucks parking in the middle of the road. So it, it's very much a negotiating way of handling and getting down the road. Yeah, exactly. You, you had mentioned an installation that was taken away because it was in an affluent area. And I'm going to pull up the photos that you sent over from Vale. And these are actually roads that I know quite well because I spend a lot of time in Vale. And it, it can be done <laughs> pretty much anywhere. It's just a, a matter of, again, getting the design right. And and I can't recall in, in Vale whether they did much outreach and education for these facilities. I, I just helicopter in every once in a while. I don't spend a lot of time there. Nowhere near as much time as when I lived in Boulder. I'd be up there almost every other weekend. I can tell you, I've ridden on these roads. I've filmed a lot on these roads. And they also have other types of treatments too, 
as well as shared space areas in the village and other types of shared space concepts that help you know, reinforce what we're talking about here is encouraging the drivers to slow down and be cognizant and careful with the more vulnerable road users that are out there. Yeah, the talking to the town engineer from City of Ale, I, I had him join me to present on this installation at a couple of different, I think at the ITE International Meeting and and one other conference, I can't remember at the, at the moment, but this is a a very successful, very well-used installation. This is where they have uh, a popular trail called the Gore Valley Trail that runs through the valley that Vale sits within. And they needed to connect the trail across this street. And they were looking for ways to make that happen and make it safe, make it comfortable. And they decided upon this treatment. And as you can see from the pictures, they get quite a few peds and bikes. I don't remember. I think they, boy, they're up around a thousand bikes a day in peak periods, I believe, and maybe 250 peds a day. And cars are only about four or 500 a day. I, I believe I'm remembering that correctly, but it, it's a very successful installation. And it shows that number one, you can have both peds and bicyclists using this treatment and that it can work as a connector for a trail system, on-street connector for a trail system. Yeah. Do you know when they actually installed this particular installation and, and dimensions and all that? This one was installed as a pilot in the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. And after they had such good experience, they decided to make it permanent. Okay. Yeah, that explains a little bit to me. I haven't been back up there since 2020. And so I'm like, this looks very familiar, but just enough different that I'm like, "Ah." and the reason why I say that is because I I have a video that I produced on that trail and many of the, the on street versions of the images that we're seeing here were part of that video. So now you've got me curious. I need to queue up that video and make that be part of the show notes and the description for, for this podcast episode so that you can see what some of that treatment looked like before, as well as some of the cool aspects of the trail that, that you were referencing. So, Michael, is there anything that we haven't yet covered that you think is incredibly important? I, I would like to touch on the results of the safety research uh, that was just completed. So, Obviously, the first reaction people have when introduced to this concept is, what the heck are you talking about? I'm supposed to be driving straight at this guy coming at me. It's just going to be carnage, right? So what is the safety performance of this treatment? And so I found some research done in other countries, and I was part of a team that just finished some research here in the U.S. on North American installations. And all three studies have shown crash rate reductions for edge lane roads over the standard two-lane treatment. And it's pretty remarkable in the U.S. where this concept is brand new to people. On all of these facilities, you're going to get some number of drivers who are visitors to the area or haven't been there before and don't know what the heck's going on. We found 11 installations that had been installed for at least five years and that we had good crash data was available for. And when we looked at these installations, we found a 44% reduction in crash rate. And of course, these aren't the high-speed, severe 
crash outcomes, usually local roads, lower volumes, lower speeds. But we are having uh, very good safety outcomes with the installations in the U.S. so far. And of course, same experience in the Netherlands. Their study was confounded a little bit in that they reduced the speed limits on many of their edge lane roads that were studied. Denmark also had some extra treatments they were doing with their edge lane roads. They would introduce traffic calming measures or reduce the speed limit, but they were seeing very significant crash rate reductions as well. So this treatment not only is safe, but it's a safety improvement compared to standard two-lane roads. Fantastic. So how do we get more of these? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. So the exciting thing is that the Ashto Bike Guide is due out. Now, it was supposed to be out this year, but it looks like it may be pushed into next year. I don't know when it's going to come out, but everybody's looking forward to it. And the great thing is that this treatment is included in the Ashto Bike Guide. Okay. And I suspect that we'll see a huge increase in uptake once that hits the, hits the shelves. That will just give it more credibility, more awareness, et cetera. And really, the big problem right now is awareness. I consider this treatment to be in the same spot that modern roundabouts were in the 1990s. They're clearly a great tool to have in the toolbox, but very few people know about them. Very few people recognize the advantages they confer. And so it's really, at this point, there's a lot of education that needs to be done, a lot of awareness raising. And I appreciate you having me on to do part of that. So I think once this becomes a better known treatment, that it, it will be used heavily all across the, the country because there are just so many road miles of local and collector type roads that could use this treatment easily and successfully. Yeah. And uh, frequent listeners of the podcast and, and viewers as well will know that I frequently say that part of the beauty of the Dutch system and the Danish systems is that they do have these other creative types of installations. That the protected bikeways and protected infrastructure, separated infrastructure, usually gets the most attention. However, 70% of the Dutch network is actually some form of shared space, and, and these are frequently used in those residential areas, and as we saw in some of the suburban contexts too, as I was making my, my way out to the airport. Fantastic. Uh, Michael, how best for folks to follow along with your work and the work of these edge lane roads? I would say the, uh, the premier spot to go if you're interested in this treatment is my website, advisorybikelanes.com. Uh, yes, it is the term I don't uh, prefer to use, but that's what it ended up being back when I started, so I'm stuck with it. So advisorybikelanes.com is a great place where I store technical information, examples that I found across the U.S., and just a lot of resource links. We also have an email listserv that people can join for free. There isn't a whole lot of traffic on it, so you're not going to be overwhelmed in your inbox. But if you're interested in the treatment and the nitty gritty and what's new, and what's happening, that's a great place to go. Uh, those are the two main uh, resources at the moment. We are at the National Committee for Uniform Traffic Control Devices level. It's a volunteer group that helps create content for the MUTCD, Uniform Traffic Control Devices. We are creating content to support edge lane roads that hopefully will be in the 
next version of the MUTCD, not the one upcoming, but the one after that. Mm, okay. uh, and of course, the Ashto bike guide should be included in there when it's published. But yeah, there's a lot happening, and I see you know that snowball is rolling down the hill. It's getting bigger and bigger. The uptake is starting to occur. I think we have almost 60 installations in the U.S. right now, uh, and that's since 2011. So it's happening. It's going to happen. Fantastic. Michael Williams, it has been such a great pleasure to uh, chat with you here today. And uh, hey, thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you all so much for tuning in to episode number 95 of the Active Towns podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation about edge lane roads and are curious to learn more about their possible applications within your neighborhoods. The fact is that many of our streets and communities would benefit from this type of treatment. Be sure to check out all the photos and links in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. That's all for this week's episode, but first, a final reminder. Please help me to grow the culture of activity movement by making a donation to Active Towns, spreading the word, and subscribing. Thank you all so very much for your support and for tuning in. Until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>